Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Bring it back a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Calm. Public radio voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. No, that, that's too that's too bedroomy. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, fireside. Fireside chat. Hello, everybody. There you go. You nailed it. Welcome back to We've Got Mail. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. See, you got romantic again. I feel like you got some champagne. I'm just a romantic person. I suppose so. Yeah. I'm a lover, not a podcaster. Actually, you are a podcaster, and you're a lover, too. You can be both. Porque no los dos. (laughs) My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other guy. I write film reviews for IGN occasionally, and uh, other places occasionally as well. Uh, and this is the podcast where we interact with you, our dear listeners, who write in your letters, uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we engage with you. We answer your letters, we address your questions, we address your concerns, uh, we accept your corrections. Yes, and uh, your and your flat-out criticism, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. of which we actually get a fair amount, which I think is only fair since we ourselves are critics. Uh, this is your podcast. You get to decide what we talk about. Uh, and uh, we're we're open books, so feel free to ask us questions, ask us for recommendations, uh, challenge our critical views, uh, whatever you'd like. And if you want to email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. Um, and I think that's about it. Most recently on the Critically Acclaimed Network, we had an episode of Critically Acclaimed where we presented our picks for the best films of the decade. Both Whitney and I had a top ten. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have any emails about this yet since that was a really long episode, but we want to encourage everybody, you know, for a while at least, uh, to send us your top ten films of the decade. Uh, we really don't have time to get into, like, really long discussions of every single movie so we're looking pretty much just for a list of titles maybe a couple of words about each um so but we really would love to hear uh, from all of you and figure out like what films resonated with all of our listeners as well as us so uh feel free to send those in if you haven't already and i guess now i yield the floor whitney who's our first letter uh, our first well we asked you to send in your top 10 lists and boy howdy did people react already so, already no okay great um so our first letter is from uh pierre hello pierre okay one second uh, pierre luke is on the coffee table st- pierre just gave us a, a straight list no sentences no descriptions right. of, <laughs> of his top 20 films of the decade fair enough uh if it's just a list that i think 20 is I fine think that's okay we want to encourage um, people to do a top 10 because it requires now, you to be choosy he but... listed them one to 20 should i count down should i do them 20 to one um, I, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah your call. All right, so uh, number twenty, the fits. Number oh yeah, I remember when that came out. I never got around to that. Uh, number nineteen, the endless. Okay. Uh, number eighteen, portrait of a lady on fire. Great choice. Number seventeen, queen of earth, which I did not see. Uh, neither did I. Uh, number sixteen, raw. Good choice. <laughs> Good choice. Great uh, horror movie. Didn't number, make either of our runners yeah. up or anything, but excellent and scary. Uh, number 15, Poetry, which I did not see. Didn't see it. Uh, number 14, La Flor, which I only saw a portion of. <laughs> okay. Because it's, it's a very long film. It's 13 and a half hours. Uh, number 13, The Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. been kind of forgotten a little bit. Yeah, Derek uh, Chan France kind of came came out swinging and then just stopped. It's like, <laughs> like two really impressive features and then just like hasn't been seen. Yeah, that's, since. A, that's an underrated crime film, though. Mm-hmm. I hope people seek that out. Yeah, uh, number twelve, The Handmaiden. Great film. Uh, number eleven, Snowpiercer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan. I think uh, Bong Joon Ho's 
other films are better. But I, I think it's a little blunt, but I think it really, really works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a fan. Didn't make my top ten no. or nothing. But uh, number ten, Computer Chess. Ooh, Did you see Computer I Chess? Didn't I hear it's really good. Oh yeah, it's, it's a, that's a good Bond. It's a documentary, film. right? Uh, no, but it's in that style. Okay. Yeah. Um, number nine, the Meyerowitz stories. Oh, you know I missed that. Selected. The Noah Baumbach. Uh, yeah, the Noah Baumbach film. Um, yeah. Number eight, Inside Out. Great pick. That that is an excellent film. Number seven, Green Room. She hasn't been making a lot of top ten lists. No, but Green Room is a really good thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you didn't see uh, Green Room, it was the late um, Anton Yelchin as a punk rocker who gets trapped in the green room of a club for white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And they, he saw them commit a murder with his whole band, and they're trying to kill the whole band. Really cool film. Yeah. Um, number six, Arrival. I love Arrival. Arrival's brilliant. Uh, number five, Certain Women, the Kelly Reichardt film. Oh, that is a great... Yeah. That should have made my run so. Damn, I'm freaking feel bad for yeah. giving that out. Yeah. There, That's a, a lot really of, amazing uh, There's film. a lot I'm forgetting about this, about yeah. the decade. It was... If, I, if I'd if i been given another month, maybe. Yeah. Uh, number four, Sierra Nevada. Oh, I didn't... Yeah, I Which didn't see that, that one. Um, I'll, I'll describe it later. Okay. Um, <laughs> number three, The Forbidden Room, the Guy Madden film. That is a great... Great, great choice. I love Guy Madden, but I didn't see The Forbidden Room. Oh, it's so cool. If you've never seen The Forbidden Room, Guy Madden like recreates silent movies that are like now lost, and the only mm. evidence we have of their existence were like really short reviews and publications. So he's just trying to guess what he thinks they would be. Oh, that is great. It's really that cool. Great. Um, number two, Two Days, One Night. Oh, yeah, you love film. that movie. I love that movie. Yeah. And number one, I Wish... The Hirokazu Koreeda film. Oh, I need to see yeah. more Hirokazu Koreeda films. Yeah, Hirokazu I'm really Koreeda behind is on his really film. Really wonderful. Everyone tells me he's amazing. I'm really behind on his filmography. Mm. That is a really <laughs> that's a solid, solid list. That is a sweet list yeah. you got right there. That is a list of someone who has sought out sought out the great cinema. stuff. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't make it better or worse mm. than anyone else's. But that is a mm. cool series of recommendations. Thank you for that. Yeah. Here's a letter from Chris R. Okay, another top ten list. Uh, hello, Luca and Sergio. Uh, this is a <laughs> list of my 10 favorite movies from 2010s. I enforce a caveat here only to include movies that neither you named during your best of the decade episode. Oh, okay. And also for perspective, I am 20 years old. Uh, I am more than double that. So my taste might be a little different. But uh, here we go. Number 10. <laughs> Number 10, Unfriended. Interesting choice. Uh, because every list needs a WTF choice. Uh, number nine, Certified Copy, which I should have had on my runners I, up. I, I like watching never... a relationship in Fast Forward. Devastatingly I, beautiful. I, I never saw Certified Copy. You don't want to say about Unfriended? Mm. I liked that that bold choice. There was this new uh, sort of... Um, it never quite caught on the way like found footage did, but of uh, movies that take place entirely in, on a computer screen. Yeah, I think uh, Unfriended was one of the first. It wasn't the mm. first, but it was it was one of Can them. We call it, it a window thriller. Is that what they call it? That's what that's uh, t- to coin a phrase. I like it. Right. Uh, I think Searching has perfected that, near yeah. as I could tell. But Unfriended deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, n- well. number nine was Abbas Kiarostami's certified copy, which I really like. Yep. Um, Number eight, Mustang, one I had forgotten about. Oh, yeah. It's to all the children who were forced to grow up too fast. Mustang was, uh, um, yeah, like a feminist coming-of-age drama about this group of teenage girls who were forced all of us like all of a sudden they were pulled out of school and forced to live only at home and primed for marriage oh yeah, yeah. and how they reacted really really badly to that awesome uh number seven assassination nation oh one of the first films to confront head-on many of the anxieties that personally affect us gen zers uh number six i, know, Mel- I, I do i think that's really exciting that there's a film out there that like we're starting to see, like, maybe, like, people in the older generation aren't recognizing it as such. Oh, there you go. I think okay. that's really cool, yeah. Uh, number six is uh, Melancholia. 
Okay. This movie gets it, man. <laughs> um, number five, Patterson. Oh, I love Patterson. Pure comfort on film. I could watch Adam Driver drive a bus hey, for ten hours. Hey, 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 what are you doing? That was on the bookshelf. No bookshelf cat. Well, he wants Knock to read. it over. It's an intellectual cat. He wants I, to read your books. I love Patterson. I watched Patterson and I totally fell in love with it. If you've ever seen it, uh, Adam Driver plays a poet who drives a bus. Mm. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole movie. Almost nothing happens in it. And it is so peaceful and relaxing. Mm. And it turns out there's an entire, like, genre of like Japanese anime that plays out a lot like Patterson where it's just Ah. slice of life and relaxed Mm. and chill and I've been getting really obsessed with it and I love it so Patterson was a real it was actually kind of a gateway film for me okay Uh, number four is The Handmaiden Uh, the only comment is yes yes Uh, number three Hereditary Uh, elevated horror is a stupid term and I'm not even sure what it means, but whatever it is, this is one of them. Elevated horror is a term that people made up uh, for when horror is really good, and they're no longer com- mm. calling it horror because they're no longer comfortable calling it horror mm. because they think horror has a stigma. It doesn't. It's just a horror movie that happens to be really, really good and thoughtful. Mm. Hereditary is a brilliant film. I like it a lot. Yeah. I think the ending oversells itself a smidge, but brilliant acting. I, I, I'm fine with the ending. Yeah. Um, number two, Lady Bird. Okay. Comment, find a flaw. I dare you. <laughs> Has one of my favorite lines of the entire decade. Don't be a Republican. Don't be a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> and number one, Black Swan. Interesting. And Natalie Portman's character said it was perfect. I felt that. Yeah, um, I, Black Swan freaked me the hell out. Yeah. Um, of, of the Aronofsky films that came out in the last decade, I chose Mother. Sort of his representative work, just because yeah. that's like his freakiest, most experimental thing. Oh, I think it's Noah. And, and well, no, Noah Noah's is... freaky and experimental too. They're both these weird biblical freakouts. Yeah. Um, I think Mother is like it's like a college film that got way out of hand. <laughs> I think that's and true I, for a I lot of Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. I think almost every Darren Aronofsky mm. movie is a college movie that got way out of hand. Mm. Um, but that's what we like about them. Yeah. Isn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Uh, Those are cool choices. Thank you for that. (laughs) Here's a letter from Joshua, his top 10 list. Okay. Hello, Joshua. Uh, Hey, guys, these are my top 10 films of the decade. And he sent a a picture. Oh. Like of the posters. Okay, Um, cool. So I'm not sure what the ranking is here. Okay, uh, we'll just go through. The Place Beyond the Pines, again. Hey, that's Uh, nice. Arrival, again. Great. Roma. Boyhood. Yep. Ex Machina. Okay, good choices. The Master. Great choice. Uh, one, which Avengers film is that? <laughs> <Let me laughs> can't, can't, can't say about the uh, Master. That is Endgame. That's the most recent uh, okay. one. Okay, Avengers Endgame. I can see uh, that. The Social Network. Yep. Victoria. And Blue is the Warmest Color. Okay, excellent love, choices all yeah. around. Excellent choices all yeah. around. What is Victoria? Um, was, that, was that the the German film that was filmed in one take? Or I think it was. Hold or, on, we're 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 got, <laughs> we're showing our ignorance it's, here. Let it's, me. It's not the. Uh, it, it, it's the 2015 film, right? I think it's the uh, one. Yeah, it's the yes, one 2015. That, it's a crime thriller. Yeah, that's, it's the German film where it, where it yeah. looks like it's like she she leaves a party and like joins a bunch of ruffians on the street and it looks like it's filmed in one take. I didn't see it, but yeah. I heard a lot of good things about that one. Well, good choice then. <laughs> um, thank you for uh, sending in. No, no thank you so I'm, I'm much. Looking, and I'm looking for some other lists. So I, was, I was, I got, I got, I love hearing everybody's choices because every once in a while, like, I'm surprised we had two. The place beyond the pines. I thought a lot of people forgotten about that one. Mm. Uh, but also, I love hearing some of these recommendations. Like, I'm writing down Victoria and Sierra yeah, Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> I need to track these down yeah. and watch them because I haven't yet. 
Uh, well, and, you know, just thumbing through the Criterion collection I'm seeing, or the Criterion channel I'm seeing some of these, like, uh, that I meant to see that I heard a lot of great things about, like Blanca Nieves. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think Sierra Nevada is on there. Oh, cool. Uh, here is a letter from Ender. Hello, Ender. Yep. Uh, Ender writes, I miss being a kid. Hmm. When I actually believed the Oscars held themselves to the highest standards, <laughs> I was completely ignorant to Oscar campaigning and stubborn mm. voters. Sadly, they have regressed themselves to that of the Golden Globes. <laughs> <laughs> In my world, there is no no more glamour or respect for winning an Oscar. How are, how are movies like Hustlers and The Lighthouse and Uncut Gems overshadowed by Jojo Rabbit? How on earth is Anthony Hopkins nominated but Kang, uh, Kang Ho Song from Parasite or Willem Dafoe from The Lighthouse aren't? How the F is Jonathan Price favored for a role where his Spanish is dubbed and then when it's speaking in English sounds nothing like Francis, just another generic attempt by an English-speaking actor to do a Latin accent? His Spanish was dubbed? Evidently so. Wow, didn't know Al, that one. Al Pacino in Scarface wins this trophy. <laughs> Eddie Murphy and Adam Sandler gave much more original performances. And lastly, how do you snub the likes of Robert Eggers, Greta Gerwig, Lorraine Scafaria, the Safdie brothers, Celine Sciamma, or Lulu Wang, but nominate Todd Phillips? Sorry to get emotional, but I really adored the Oscars when I was growing up, and it is sad to watch great films and performances be forgotten in favor of big studios pumping cash to get nominations. Saludos desde Mexico. Someone asked a question on Twitter, um that I was thinking about a bit. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who it was, but uh, the question was, what was the year and what was the film or what was the award mm-hmm. where you lost your faith in the Academy? Mm. Well, it took a while for me. Yeah. Because I was really paying close attention for a long time. Yeah. And they made a lot of choices that I didn't agree with. Um, like, they gave Best Picture to Gladiator, which is a film I dislike intensely. Okay. Um, but... Even then, I felt that was like sort of a slip up. Like every every, every once in a while, there's a de- there's a blip. You decade, know? Yeah. decade and a half. There's like one just really bad one. It's like okay, the greatest show on earth has best picture. Yeah, that's that's not a best picture kind of movie. It's just uh, it's actually there was sentimental kind of Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille movie, Cecil B. DeMille or Gladiator. We hadn't had that kind of big epic in a while. I actually like Gladiator. And I watched a lot, Gladiator, but... and we still didn't have that epic. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it when when Crash won Best Picture, it's like there's something broken with this system. Crash killed it for me yeah. as well, and I was pretty old. I was in my, I was out of college by that point, and I, yeah, I knew the Oscars were inherently flawed mm. uh, because of course they are. They're people, but when I was really little, uh-huh. um, much like uh, our, our our writer, um, when I watched the I I remember the first Oscars I consciously remember watching, like mm. consciously, it was the year Silence of the Lambs won. All right. Um, and I know I'd watched them before then, but just like that one really, really stuck with me because I remember watching it and there were all of these nominees that I had heard of mm-hmm. and, and or watched, like Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast. And then there were a ton that I hadn't. Okay. And I remember thinking to myself, shit, I got to see that. Uh-huh. I can't remember what was that, like Tom and Viv or something like that. It was one of those, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of art house movies that had slipped by me. And because I was a kid. And like, you know, can't watch films like Tom and Viv. Well, I could, I but like, you, could, but you know, yeah. we, we might have rented them or something like that. But they weren't being advertised to me. A lot of the movies that were nominated for the Academy Awards totally slipped me by. Mm. And I think that's one of the great values of the Academy Awards. Much like I love hearing your top mm. ten list of the decade is, oh, sh- oh, I need to see that. Apparently, like I just, there's a lot of people who are really casual film enthusiasts. Either they're young. Hmm. Or they're adults who simply do not follow the industry, which is, frankly, most adults. Yeah. Let's just be fair here. A lot of people consume movies the way a lot of us consume 
Fast food. food yeah, yeah, fast food. Kind of willy-nilly. You know, if it's good, awesome. If it's not, we had lunch. Yeah. You know, it's fine. And, and, for a lot, and just like fast food, for a lot of people, it's an impulse buy. Yeah. It's like... Some people get really worked up around, like around blockbuster season, like the summertime. They want to yeah. see a few big movies throughout the year, and they get really excited about those. But yeah, for the most part, people just sort of consume very casually. This is why I get pissed off about snubs. On one hand, I just want great people to be rewarded for their work, but I also understand that art is subjective. The mm. academy is still very largely biased towards very certain groups. They've done a good job of mitigating that somewhat, but it's still in, based in, in, in certain years. In certain years more than others, but like still like we're they're trying to get it a bit more representational of the actual industry. But it still clearly caters to certain demographics which are interested in certain kinds of films like the two popes, which is fine, but like it's an Oscar y kind of movie. Yeah. Um but every time something like Hustlers doesn't get nominated for anything or the Farewell doesn't get nominated for anything, that is literally millions of people who might never hear about it. Yeah. I guess yeah. Hustlers did okay, but Farewell really could have used the extra boost. Uncut Gems really could have used the extra boost. Um, Lighthouse got nominated for best cinematography as well. It should have, but, that, but, but that's it. But yeah. that's it, and that's kind of that is kind of crap. Mm. Willem Dafoe totally should have been nominated. Um, what, what what Oscar snubs really ticked you off this year? Well, I mean, all of them. Portrait of yeah. a Lady on Fire uh, wasn't uh, submitted for the best international film for, uh, from France. They chose Les Misérables instead, and that would, did get nominated. Which I have seen, and yeah. it's nowhere near as good as Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's still a fine film. I, yeah, I, I like think, it, but, actually. Uh, we'll but, review it on the show eventually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that... From what I understand, France doesn't have to submit it for that category for it to be eligible in other categories. No. So Celine Sciamma could have been nominated for Best Director. And in fact, and, we, and yeah, yeah and, and, I, and we, we're of, we're the in two like, leads could have been up for, both could have been up for Best Actress. There were, there were um, indeed, there were Oscar campaigns for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It just hmm. was ineligible for foreign language film. But yeah, it should have, should have been up for Actress, Supporting Actress, Director, Picture, Cinematography, hmm. at least. Any of those Costumes, things. Costumes, yeah. you know. So that one really pissed me off, that, that The Lighthouse only got cinematography. Great cinematography. Yeah. Hope it wins. Yeah. Because it's the only one it's going to get, but you know, not Willem Defoe, not yeah. the not Robert Eggers for the screenplay. Um, the the biggest like fuck you. Uh-huh. I, I will. There's one snub I actually appreciate, and that's Frozen Two, because it's like <laughs> that would have been like the obligatory yeah, nomination for Disney, and they didn't go there. Well, and I'm I glad because lo- it's actually not that great a movie. Well, what I like is that uh, Disney animation is is now kind of second class to other studios. Yeah, uh, like the big I- mainstream canonical Disney animated films aren't where their money is now. They're so busy focused on sort of their purchased IPs like Star Wars and Marvel. Well, Frozen 2 made bank and so did Toy Story 4, but, well, but and I still think Toy again, Story 4 might still win it. Toy Story, and Toy Story 4 is quite good, but again, that's Pixar. Yeah. It's a different creative team. Disney distributes it and they get the money for it. I think that's but, a little uh, bit more uh, uh, okay, maybe I'm match splitting now, but, but, yeah. but anyway, the one that really pissed me off is every woman who wasn't nominated for Best Director. Yeah. It's absurd. Well, Gre- Greta Gerwig especially, but also Celine Well, because Greta Gerwig's film was at least nominated for Best Picture, yeah. so it's kind of weird that uh, it wasn't you know, up for I would it. love to have seen Mati Diop, uh, who yeah. did Atlantics, uh, be nominated for Best 
director, even if even if Atlantis wasn't up for best picture. It was considered a front runner was, for cinematography. It, it, a lot of people were surprised it didn't make it. And it because it is such a, a strange film that required such yeah. a careful directing job, and she did a really awesome job on that one. That's how I feel about mm. uh, Shalene Shyama. I don't mm. feel like everyone could have done what she did for Portrait Lady on Fire. I don't feel like everyone could have done what Lulu Wang did for The Farewell. That requires an enormous amount of sensitivity yeah. to the characters and the cultures mm. uh, in which they live to even remotely pull off. Uh, Lorraine Scafaria, I think, did a crime yeah. movie on par with just about anything like Martin Scorsese's ever done. And mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, Martin Scorsese gets in for The Irishman, but I feel like Hustlers is the one that feels like it's actually pushing the genre forward. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a Scorsese fan, but yeah. I would not have been hurt if he was not nominated in this category. No, nor I. Because I think The Irishman is is not one of his best films. It's a good film. Yeah, it's good. It's quite good. Yeah. It, it was on my runners-up for the best pictures of the year, yeah. but um, I, respect I, I, I wouldn't have been hurt if, if Scorsese was overlooked this year. Completely. Like, and I now think, we have not yeah. only is Scorsese nominated, but a guy who's ripping off Scorsese is also nominated. If Todd Phillips hurts me. beats Martin Scorsese for ripping off Martin Scorsese... Uh-huh. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We're, That's like, weird. Like the people who are electing aren't really paying attention to the broad scope of cinema. Yeah. Just sort of going with sort of what, what's I'm hot. Fine, I don't I'm know. fine with movies paying mm. homage to other movies, but when your movie is literally just an homage to other movies, mm. you, I, I think you need to be doing something more interesting with it. Like you should be trans... Tarantino, to his credit. <laughs> I don't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm on the record on that. Mm. At the very least, he's taking all of his influences and making them his own. And telling a different story with them and like doing something mm. distinct. And I don't feel like Joker did that. I feel like Joker just did King of Comedy again, but with the Joker. Mm. It's not, it, not, it, not, it, that's it, not a bad idea. Yeah, it's a neat idea, but yeah, yeah, I, I'm not 11 a, Academy I, Awards. I, I don't on. hate that movie. Yeah. I don't think it's very good, but like, mm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the Oscars are disappointing. The Oscars kind of matter because the industry very much revolves around them and they introduce a lot of people to these mm. movies. So if a snub well, in, is a snub, it, it hurts. In terms but, of yeah. uh, American film uh, posterity, the Oscars kind of matter. Yeah, if you're going for books. like a, a, yeah. an actual barometer of quality, go to the Indie Spirit Awards, go to the, yeah. the Critics' Choice Awards, go, go to bodies that are actually more con- go to Kaiju Cinema for goodness well, sake well yeah uh, or the or Sight and Sound you know these these people who are actually concerned with the films that are moving the art forward mm-hmm. rather than simply I agree. what we're going to put down on the books for posterity. And, and I can dis- I'll, I'll say this t- uh, uh, two groups who mm. every year make choices I respect even if I don't agree with them mm. You, you mentioned them already. Uh, Independent Spirit Awards, mm-hmm. uh, and actually the Los Angeles uh, Association oh, Film Critics oh, uh, LAFCA. LAFCA, Los mm-hmm. Angeles Film Critics Association, which I know several members. Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate the approach that they take mm-hmm. to their choices. They actually have long conversations about it. That's they, a, it feels like they're going yeah. a bit more in depth when they make a choice than there's just yeah, a this, simple blind ballot. The, the blind. I'm, I'm so sick of the blind ballot. It's not yeah. a good way to select best films of the year. And I imagine I the Academy, the way, it's nearly impossible because there are thousands upon thousands uh, yeah, of members. Exactly. You can't so get you, them all in a room. You have but. to do a blind ballot for that. But uh, LAFCA, which only has a, like a finite number of members, yeah, a couple, few dozen, get, yeah. gets them all in the sa- as many of as they can anyway, yeah. and in the same room together. And they actually, like, I like to picture it's like this big 
like Odeon shaped tribunal where they're just sort of like in these <laughs> prison seats and they stand up and bang their shoes on desks in this darkened room and they yell out nominees. Oh, I think Monty Diop ought to get it. You are a fool, sir. <laughs> Everyone's wearing powdered wigs. Yeah, and they all have powdered wigs. I like there's this montage. I, I only just recently saw the two popes because it's not for Academy Awards. So I'm trying to catch up, mm. but like when they there's two elections for pope. In that movie, because mm. they're do popes, and uh, <laughs> but every time they do it, it's like this weird kind of alien, like oh well, and this person submits their nomination, and all of a sudden there's a ball rolls into a thing, and like a bit of red string gets spooled onto a cord. And I don't know what the fuck's going it's on. It's like a Matthew Barney film. Yeah, all of a it's a little, it's um, a little sort of ancient in a way and i imagine that well, it was I, the I, roman catholic church no, I know. well yeah and it was but like i kind of <laughs> want that from like my my critics bureau i yeah, want there to yeah. be i want there to be incense mm. burning and i want you know maybe that's how i picture the, sa- yeah. like we we sacrifice a vhs every year <laughs> to the gods I'm, I'm not a member of lafka i've applied i've not been accepted Same. um I've only applied once, though. I should probably apply a couple I've more been a, times. I've been yeah. trying for ten years. Yeah. <laughs> they do not want me. <laughs> but, uh, that, so I've never actually had a chance to go in and listen and see what that looks like. And, yeah. I, and, and I think they're pretty strict about, like, filming it. But Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they're open about tweeting about it, and yeah. I love hearing well, once, about it. Once yeah. the, the winner is actually chosen. But I feel like a debate, like a critical debate like that, is a much healthier way to actually select best films of the year. Because I want to be, I want to be like you know someone to present something to me, and I'd never thought of it before, and then be like, well, I disagree, and they say, well, I think they should win for these three reasons, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. Mm. That's a great conversation to have. I'd love that. Anyway. Right. Anyway, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Johannes. Hello, Johannes. Hi, Johannes. Um, dear Mr. Beast and Rockmeister McCool, <laughs> greetings from Germany. Oh, guten Tag. Um, I'm an editor in the German film industry, but my goal is to shift my career over to the United States at some point because I find the German film industry insanely frustrating. Okay. The main reason is the way movies are financed over here. Because the market for German cinema isn't that big, it's just Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, it's almost impossible to finance a movie independently and make a profit in the end. So most movies get financed through a combination of government subsidies and money from public television. All these organizations then each have say in what the movie should be. So there's input from multiple committees, each with their own agendas, egos, and so on, and the result is a movie landscape filled with movies that look the same, feel the same, recycle the same tired plots and characters without any risk and without and with all the edges filed off. Is that saying? Uh, is that a saying in English? I'm not sure. Yes, yeah. having the edges filed off. Yeah, is, totally is a saying. Yeah. Understand. Um, every once in a while, there's a movie that manages to break through all the bullshit and still deliver a good product, but it's the exception, not the rule. Um, that's the case in, in a lot of countries. A lot of yeah. uh, film uh, industries are financed by the government in other countries, yeah. which is not something that I guess there's like tax subsidies in, in America. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, uh, like studios and uh, investors, like private investors uh, fund. Movies. It's it's considered strictly a capitalist enterprise by yeah, most yeah. people. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of countries out there who if you want to make a movie in your country and you're not independently wealthy and I don't even know what the rules are. Um, yeah, there are government organizations that mm. you can go to that will give you money for your various projects. Um, I, I've talked to various filmmakers about, like, some of them, like, in New Zealand in New Zealand, or Canada, Austria yeah. and, like, maybe was that Austria or, or Finland? But, um, yeah, I mean, I imagine that must be a really difficult process. Yeah. Anyways, uh, he says, I'm not against public funding for movies, uh-huh. not at all, but I think there has to be a way to do it without hindering artistic expression and risk-taking. There has to be a middle ground somewhere. I would be interested to hear what you think, because I'm not sure what that middle ground is. Also, 
Are there any German movies from the last decade that broke through the system and made an impression on you? Mine are Victoria, Tony Erdman, In the Fade, uh, and System Crasher or System Springer from last year. I didn't see System Springer. Neither did I. Um, sorry for the long letter. Keep up the great work, Johannes. Um, what is the middle ground? Like, how can you get public funding mm-hmm. from movies? Well, in America, that's not happening. I think yeah, I think that the private enterprise machine is just way too big for uh, the U.S. government to come in and start financing films. Um, you should watch Tim Robbins' film Cradle Will Rock. Oh, that's because, a good. That's uh, a good. That's Cradle a good one, Will yeah. Rock was, uh, takes place during the Works Progress Administration, which was uh, put into place during the Great Depression to ensure people get government-funded work. Uh, the, the, it was the, and in the arts in particular. Uh, well, the film is about the arts in particular, but yeah, yeah the, the Works Progress Administration. But yeah, there, there was actually a federal theater project. The government was funding theater. So working actors and working performers would have work during the Great Depression. Uh, and unfortunately, this meant, and this, the, this film is exactly about what you're talking about, uh, when a, a composer and uh, he wrote the lyrics and the book and the music for a, a musical called Cradle Will Rock, Mark Blitstein mm-hmm. wrote The Cradle Will Rock. It was an aggressively political film about capitalism and the evils of the American system and the things that led to the Great Depression. And... Uh, all of the people involved in the theater were really excited about it. And they were trying to put on this really big uh, theatrical production. Uh, star director Orson Welles was putting it together, and he was hmm. still just a kid at the time. This is before he made uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, but he was still all, he was already known for being, like, the shadow. And it was about all these... Uh, Tim Robbins did his homework. All of the people in it were based on real people. Uh, so all of the actors, all of the financers, everybody who was involved in mm-hmm. this thing... And then I feel like uh, there was one weird, like weirdly unnecessary character he fictionalized. I'm trying to oh, remember now. I'm trying. I remember reading about yeah, it when it came out. But anyway, that's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Yeah, but there, there's of course there's some fictionalization. You know, um, there's a, a subplot with uh, Rockefeller and um, uh, uh, Diego Rivera, the muralist. Yeah. Uh, and which uh, because Diego Rivera was hired by the government to do this big mural mm-hmm. uh, in a Rockefeller building, and Rockefeller was really concerned with the political messages in it. Yeah, because he wanted to put some communist stuff in there because he yeah. was Diego Rivera. Well, he wanted to paint Lenin on the poster, and you yeah. know this isn't not 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 kosher at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was a congressman, his name was Congressman Dyes, and he, real-life congressman, who was really suspicious of these weird lefty things that were creeping into the art and how you should do non-political art. Well, and then the, and and it started uh, getting stupid. Like, at the beginning of the movie, you see two people who have, like... Oh, they're dressed got, as beavers. Yeah, they're yeah. dressed as beavers or squirrels, and, like, they're, mm-hmm. like their whole thing is, we're just gonna do a play for children, it's about the importance of sharing. And they're like... Okay, great. That's cute. Do that. Mm. And then, like halfway through the movie, their funding is taken away because sharing is socialist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Revolt of the Beavers, by the way, that was a real thing. I'm that sure was, it was not. That was not fictionalized for I'm the movie. Sure Somebody actually put together a musical called Revolt of the Beavers. I, uh, I found a coffee table book. The about, Beavers but, um, are revolting. You said it. They stink on ice. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, and it was about how the American government got so suspicious of art that they shut down the federal theater project. Yeah. And uh, this is about the, about that, about how American politics are just way too sticky to allow for the arts. And it's been a battle ever since the beginning. Yeah. Um, is there a ground where they can get, where we can use public funding to make films? Yes. Sure. Uh, we can just make it happen. Yeah. Um, I think there's too many people in the American government who wouldn't allow it to happen, but there's no reason why it shouldn't. 
True, and I granted, like, a lot of films that are made under these systems are made under a variety of compromises. Uh, a lot of great films have been made under compromises. I don't mm. think it's necessarily the best way to work. Mm. Uh, however, uh, it hasn't stopped good films from being made entirely. Um, and when it comes to German films of the 2010s, I'll be mm. perfectly honest, uh, I'm not as well-versed as I would like to be. Okay. Um, I remember last year a film that I actually really, really admired, but didn't quite make my best of list was Transit. Oh, okay. Which was an excellent film uh, based on a World War II novel about uh, fleeing uh, fleeing fascist Europe uh, Mm. that they decided to set in the present day because it's basically the same again. (laughs) Um, And that's a really excellent movie, and I highly recommend that. Mm. Um, I saw a German film... At Sundance in 2016, that I don't think oh, ever right. got. You went to Sundance. I've been to Sundance. I've been to quite a few Sundances. Um, and in 2016, I saw a film that I don't think ever got distribution over here, mm. called Wild. Nothing to do with the Reese Witherspoon movie. Um, that was about a woman who finds a wolf like in a park near her okay. apartment and decides to capture it and keep it in her apartment. And rather than domesticating the wolf, she starts turning more feral. <laughs> uh, it's not a horror movie. It does, although right. it gets very grim. Um, I didn't love it, but I, I appreciated mm-hmm. that it, it took some really, really big swings and tried to do some daring, yeah, uh, uh, daring things. I saw a, a terrific film near the beginning of the decade. I'm not sure if it was in released in Germany in like 2009 because I saw it in 2011. It was just called. It was called Young Goethe and Love. Yeah. Uh, in Germany, it was just called Goethe with an exclamation point. <laughs> And I think it was a really good biography of, uh, of Johannes Goethe um, during the writing of The Sorrows of Young Werther, if you've ever run, read the book. And who hasn't? If you were a melancholy college student, you've probably read The Sorrows of Young Werther. I'm Verter. being mildly sarcastic. Okay. It's classic literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people have more have mm. dedicated more time in their lives to it than others. Um, um, yeah, I'm trying to... Th- yeah. Well, listen. There's other, a lot of other German films. Well, I it raises seen. a question, honestly, of how much you know. We like to think this is America; we mm. can get everything. But a lot of stuff mm. isn't never comes here. Mm. It just doesn't. <gasps> oh, you know what? There was a film that came out in like 2013 that I should have put on my runners up list for best. Oh yeah, what's that? Called Wetlands. Oh yeah, did I you ever what? see Wetlands? No, I never did. But I remember hearing about yeah, it. Yeah, it was about um, this this wonderful, very frank look at uh, at the body and sexuality. Um, from, oh, let me look it up. Uh, who directed that one? Oh, David Venent is yeah. the name of the director, and um, yeah, that was a really terrific, really energetic, wonderful film about uh, things that go bad during a shaving accident, and the yeah. young, the young woman who is the victim of this shaving accident, uh, how she kind of bonds with one of the nurses in the hospital. Um, yeah, it's it's just really wonderfully kind of punk rock and sexually adventurous in a way. Mm. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah, that one was really good. Um, <laughs> there's also a lot like, of a, a there's lot, a lot, a lot of produ- just, a lot just don't make it here. There's, well, there's a, lot a lot of, of films like you know, Ruben Fleischer and Roland Emmerich who are German directors mm. working there's, in America. There's but, a lot yeah. of German co-productions as mm. well, and it's hard to say if those are made actually under the same like mm. auspices. Like The Book Thief was a German American oh, yeah, co-production, yeah, yeah. but it's so American. Mm. The way that it's presented. Also, it's not a very good movie. <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, but thank you for your letter. That was mm. that was really interesting. Um, I hope you find a way to navigate that, and I hope you find a way to work. Um, because if you have something to say, and you want to say it, and you mm. want to make films, I think you should. Mm. So, I hope we get to see your films. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, and don't don't think that just coming to America, you're going to have more opportunities. You probably are, just because more films are made here than than almost anywhere else. I think, mm. I think India has its In, beat. But, India uh, has its beat. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's still going to be hard. It's still, still going to be hard. But it might be point, it might yeah. be hard in different ways, and mm. that might seem like a step upward. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know though. Let let us know if working for like one megalomaniacal artist is better or worse than working for like a a rank of uh, committees who are dictating the content of the films. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either way. <laughs> um, here's a letter from Hayden. This is another list. Hey, uh, hello. The past year was the first one since 2015 that I didn't see over 100 newly released films. Okay. I only saw 79. That's still you know, pretty good. That is a respectable number, yeah, all right? Yeah, no one should be ashamed of that. That's a lot of movies. Yeah, if you see one movie a week, you're doing great. Yeah. Um, but from the crop I did see, I came away thinking 2019 was a very decent year for movies. Indeed. Uh, so much, in fact, I made a top 20 instead of a top 10. For the sake of length, I'll only be listing the films and not commenting on them. Prepare to disagree, because my list contains at least one film I know either one of you hated. Great. So, number 20, The Art of Self-Defense. I like that movie a lot. I'm, yeah. um, wish I had more opportunity to talk about it. Mm. I think it is a really, really excellent um Subversive film about um, toxic masculinity. Yeah. I think uh, it's really, really good. It looked up my alley and I, I sat on oh, it. Yeah. You should see that. In- uh, number 19, The Beach Bum. Ah, and I didn't miss that one. Harmony Kareen makes another film about filth. And filth is good in that movie. Yay! <laughs> uh, number 18, Her Smell. Still haven't uh, seen it. Number 17, Avengers Endgame. Number 16, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, I just saw <laughs> that. Really, really sweet movie. Like it's, a lot. It's, it's sweet. It's sweet. Uh, yeah, that's it's, it's light. That's where I'm going to go. It is light, but I think it's very sweet. Uh, number fifteen, climax. Good job. <laughs> Not my favorite. I did climax. I didn't uh, like number it. fourteen, loose. Didn't see. Okay. Uh, number thirteen, high life. Love high life. Mm-hmm. Uh, number twelve, parasite. I love parasite. Great movie. Uh, number eleven, us. Great movie. Uh, Made my top ten. Yeah. Number ten, Doctor Sleep. Ah, yeah. I love uh, Doctor Sleep. Uh, Whitney's mean, wrong uh, about a lot of things uh, sometimes. Doctor Sleep is yeah. dumb vampire. It's not dumb vampire. It's smart. There's ghost juice in thermoses in that movie. It is stupid. Where else are you going to put it? (laughs) Uh, Number nine, Knives Out. Great movie. Number eight, Book Smart. Yes. Number seven, Uncut Gems. Yep. Uh, Number six, One Cut of the Dead. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen it yet either. Uh, I've heard a lot of good things about it. Number five, The Lighthouse. Yeah. Number four, Midsommar, The Director's Cut, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen The the Director's Cut cut either. Uh, Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No comment. Boo. Number two, Under the Silver Lake. I missed this. I've I, heard. I, I've heard the legend. I saw. I only saw half, so I can't comment. I, and okay. Again, it was just circumstances, not because I disliked it. And number one, Marriage Story. Okay. Marriage Story was your number one. All right. Um, marriage Story uh, hits some people <clears throat> harder than others. Yeah. Me, all I saw was a pretty good drama, but uh, I know a lot of people who have been really deeply affected by it. Mm. So fair enough. Um, that's a solid list. Mm. I, I disagree with a couple of those. Couple, at least one of those ended up on my worst of the year. Uh, but uh, I also know I'm in the minority on that, so fair enough. Okay, uh, here is a question from JP. Hi, JP. Uh, hi, JP. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, I have to disagree with Bibbs when he said, quote, seeing the world not as it really is, but through the veil of depression, 
because that is exactly the problem. Mm. Studies have shown that most people who are overtly optimistic about the world around them, and particularly their place in it, in surveys more than half the population think they're more attractive, more intelligent, or even luckier than the average, usually by a wide margin, which is clearly impossible, statistically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Indeed, the fact that lotteries are huge money spinners is evidence (laughs) of this. Most people probably realize they have very little chance of winning, but will buy in anyway. Telling a depressive to, quote, be realistic is the wrong thing for you to say, because they usually are being realistic. The problem is when those expectations become self-perpetuating. I probably won't succeed, so I won't even try. At which point, failure is inevitable. Convincing people to keep trying anyway is probably the best advice you can offer. Speaking for myself, I would say that setting yourself small attainable goals, as in go for a walk in the park, read a new book, clean Mm. the kitchen, etc., is probably helpful, as it shows you can succeed, if only in a small way. While you probably won't become a millionaire, marry a supermodel, or become president, you can make your life a little bit better, and that can help you to keep trying, JP. Um, Uh, That's a matter of perspective. mm. Uh, I can appreciate that. That's not how I view depression and Mm -hmm. uh, granted I'm no expert. I know my depression and what I've discussed with Mm -hmm. various therapists and what I've read. But um, uh, when I said that, I I didn't mean to say that like optimism is reality or that the opposite of depression Mm -hmm. is reality. What I mean to say is that when I, for example, am depressed and I think that everything is miserable and what's, there's literally no point in doing anything, why even bother? Why am I here? Nobody likes me. Mm. Um, that's not me accurately gauging reality. Hmm. That is me looking at reality through a perspective of pessimism and cynicism. That's not to say that pessimism and cynicism are never connected directly to depression. Yeah, that's not, or, or 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 that there's no ever that they have no validity whatsoever in any sort mm. of thought process or discourse. But the idea that I am depressed but I'm this is like my depression is the way things should be. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. Got when it. you say that like I'm depressed, why? Because I'm thinking clearly. That's not necessarily the case. Mm. Being sad is part of the human experience and it should not just be avoided. And the opposite of depression isn't ecstasy. Mm. Uh, for me, it's just living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just going about your day. Mm. I think we're talking about the same thing in a different way. Because mm. you're talking about you know setting attainable goals, being reasonable. But um, for me, the idea that seeing the world purely as something that is cynical that is out to get you in which I I, I don't have a part mm. it took a really 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 long time to learn that when people suggest otherwise they're not lying to me mm. that's what I'm talking about okay. um, but I all of these I, I try to talk about mental health a lot because I, I went through a lot of my life with it being heavily stigmatized and making me feel really isolated and alienated mm. and alone and that really amplified all of my feelings of depression and anxiety. So that doesn't mean I necessarily have all the great insights in the world, but I do. I am glad we're allowed to have this conversation and that we're comfortable mm-hmm. having this conversation and that we can share ideas mm-hmm. about this. Clearly, we have somewhat different ideas about depression, but I think we're hovering around the same basic idea. Yeah. So if I articulated myself in a way that made it seem like I was suggesting euphoria... <laughs> is the ideal state that's that's not mm-hmm. what I meant what I mean is when you're depressed it doesn't mean that you're necessarily viewing the world the way it is depression can be the symptom mm-hmm. of something you know what I mean like mm-hmm. all those feelings can be the symptom of depression oh, yeah. rather than depression is a symptom of reality yeah. you know what I mean I, I... 
a, a little bit. My, okay, I, 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 think my, I think my depression functions different than most people's. That may be the case. Uh, yeah, that um, may be the case. I'm just saying, depression is not. I don't like think a, depression is a symptom of seeing the world yeah. the way it really is. I think depression is a symptom of depression. Yeah. Um. There's. Uh, we we get a lot of questions. Um. I get a lot of questions anyway from people who ask me like if if you're feeling really down, if you're you're really depressed and life is just gray, what films do you watch to make yourself feel better? <laughs> it's like that's not the way a film works for me. I can't just watch a film and feel better. Yeah. The, the world is still gray while I'm watching it and it's gray outside when the film's over. It doesn't matter how great that film is. Uh, it's not going to cut through. It's just going to bounce off my skin. So what I need to do is watch really harrowing, depressing stuff when I'm in a good mood. Mm-hmm. And that way I have like emotional, uh, the correct emotional vocabulary to deal with it when it comes up. Yeah, I, sometimes I think we look at, like it's when the, we think about like what what's a movie you can watch, what's a song you can listen to. Mm. That'll cheer you up when you're sad. And sometimes if you're sad about something kind of straightforward, that can be enough. Just mm. like, oh yeah, everything's going to be okay, blah, 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 blah. But if you're really, really, really down in the dumps, mm. um, it may sometimes, and this is something I struggle with because I think of avoiding sad things as a survival tool <laughs> for me. It's, it's, uh, but oh, I'm, it's a coping mechanism. No, no, it, it, yeah. <laughs> but like I, I'm learning gradually that... Um, you know, being confrontational with your feelings can actually have a greater, long-lasting impact mm-hmm. than just putting on an Aqua album and rocking out. Like, it may be yeah. a little better for me to watch a sad movie than it is for me to watch a happy one sometimes. But I'll put I'll put on Elias Marish's Begotten. Oh gosh. And then put on uh, turn off the sound and then put on the best of Doctor Demento and listen to them simultaneously. <laughs> oh my god, that's the most and, weird, perverse thing. And your brain doesn't know what to do, and no. it breaks through whatever your mood is, <laughs> because confusion is just, the most basic state of the human mind. Your brain will just chisel its way out of your skull, like <laughs> Shawshank Redemption, I'm and just get here, out man. like that. Gone. <laughs> I'm getting some Taco Bell. Oh, God. <laughs> Here's a letter from Michael Rich. Hello, Hi, Michael. Michael Rich. Um, I, I read your uh, whatever you sign off your letter as. That's what I'm going to yeah. read. So, um, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, thank you for bringing me much joy as I enjoy binging your podcast. You make my workday so much more enjoyable, considering that some days I don't have much work to do. There, oh, that, that sounds like a kind of a blissful workday. Uh, therefore, <laughs> it makes my work hours go by much more faster. Uh I have been getting more into podcasting the last few years. Hmm. Uh, the two that I listen to most is Philadelphia Film Critics Circle and Fictional Frontiers, although I strictly listen to the James Bernardelli interviews. I recently started to listen to the old B-Movies podcast, The Earliest Cutoff Point, and Linoleum Knife, hmm. and also a horror-themed podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. Oh, I hear that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry to know that What the Flick got canceled, although... Uh, I dropped off with Breakfast All Day. Yeah, I was about to say. They're, yeah. They're Breakfast All Day now. Yeah, they're doing that. Um, when it comes to your Cancel Too Soon podcast, let me mm. just say it brings me joy to know certain shows that I've never heard of and thankful certain certain shows that I never will watch. <laughs> Although Profit and Man and Machine sound interesting. Yay! Uh, but of those, you uh, your viewed Pitch and Almost Human are two of six shows that were canceled after one season that I left feeling legitimately cheated were canceled. The other four were John Doe, yep. Terra Nova, mm. Forever, not to be confused with Amsterdam. Yeah, no, the, Im- and, the immortal one, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and Kid Nation. <laughs> <laughs> Look up Kid Nation, dear listeners, because that was a fiasco from the start. That was a hell of a choice. Uh, 
Uh, hope you review those at some point. Whiskey Cavalier, Alcatraz, and Journeyman. I just saw the trailers for and said to myself, "Nope, that is not going to get can- that is going to get canceled." Bucky O'Hare, I remember vaguely as from when I was a child, strolling through the children's section of my local video store, but never renting. Bucky O'Hare is all right. Bucky O'Hare's fine. It's, 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 it's weird. It's, it's I liked it when I was very a kid. Strange. It's got a great theme song. Yeah. Um, questions one. Yeah, uh, I think at times you may be a little too hard on UPN. <laughs> <laughs> How could we be? We call um, it the failingest network uh, in TV history. I think uh, we're, we might be a little hard on UPN. I'm not saying UPN was the greatest thing since sliced bread or anything, considering that I remember UPN mostly for their black urban family comedies. Uh, granted, they're not all great. Moesha, Half and Half, The Parkers, Girlfriends, mm. Malcolm and Eddie, Eve, One and One, and All of Us, and the greatest animated show ever, Dilbert. <laughs> all hail Dilbert. Uh, I remember they had Dilbert yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. Dilbert. Uh, that's actually a really good point, um, and that's something we haven't really talked about with UPN, because UPN is typically considered, like, all they really had was Star Trek. And Star that Trek was, was, like, their one hit. But they yeah, actually, but, you, that's a really good point, point. we didn't really talk about it, because those are their successful shows. I think Mo- we don't really talk about a lot of this. Like, Moesha was a big hit. Like, you know, well, it was a modest well, hit. Yeah. It, it, it was a People modest remember hit. Mo- Moesha. UPN wasn't there. even in, like, not every place in the country even had UPN, mm. so UPN was only ever, their most successful show could only ever be so successful. Yeah. Um, so they were already struggling, like just from that sheer fact of their existence. But these shows developed a clear and consistent, you know, audience mm. that followed them. That this was an underrepresented market and demographic and mm. black yeah. urban family comedy. Yeah, no, yeah. And, and like seriously, touche. Well, well <laughs> stated. Um, we haven't brought those shows up because they lasted longer. Those mostly those were popular shows. But yeah, game. that's a good point. Um, when it comes to dramas outside Star Trek, uh-huh. without having to look it up on Wikipedia, I could list The Love Boat, The Next Wave. We've been, you... look, we've been could... looking for The Love Boat, The yeah. Next Wave, actually. Uh, and uh, The Twilight Zone, hosted by the very bored-looking Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> um, <laughs> who looked like he showed up on set for five minutes, then promptly left. Yeah, that's about right. Um, I, I like that new version of the Twilight Zone. I think I, it's fine. It's I better. It's, I think I only saw one it's episode. Actually, of it. way better than Jordan Peele's. Jordan Peele's is not good. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it'll improve. They did renew it, but yeah, yeah. I've seen some of his new ones. Fair just, it's like it, it started okay, and then they just got bad, and the writing just got uh, it's, worse and worse. I don't know why. It's so hard to capture what Rod Serling like. Yeah, had. Well, like he had we, such we a we very have a particular mind like that. He know? just had a very particular tone. Like even Jordan Peele, it's a different tone. Mm. He he tells different kind of stories. Like mm. I haven't seen it, but I know he tells different kinds of stories because mm. I know the kind of stories Rod Serling tells, and I've seen a lot of <laughs> Jordan Peele stuff. They're different yeah, folks. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and secondly, second question. Yes. And, and final question: uh, Could Siskel and Ebert be made today, with the advent of film criticism as it is now? And also, who do you prefer, Gene or Roger? Uh, okay. <laughs> Sincerely, Michael Rich. P.S. Apologies for the length. Don't I, I apologize don't, for the length. Never apologize for the length. Um, second question first. Um, I was actually always a Siskel fan. Mm. I know that sounds like weird sacrilege, but Ebert, like you know, he lived like another like fifteen years after Gene Siskel passed away, mm. and he was very prolific. And for a lot of people in like our generation or younger, he was then the eminent film critic of his generation. Mm. Um, but for a long time there, Siskel was right there with him, and um, I appreciated 
Siskel's approach and the way that he bounced off of Ebert, and mm. I think I agreed with Siskel a little bit more often. Okay. Uh, but it's been a long time since I've actually read a lot of Siskel's stuff, so I couldn't speak about it too eloquently. I just remember mm. liking Siskel a wee bit better. Yeah. Um, Siskel was, I think, a, a detail guy. Yeah. He liked little plot points. He could. He liked a single performance. Mm-hmm. He uh, took a filmmaking as. Sort of a collection of little little details that were assembled together. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert, who I kind of, when I was becoming a critic, was like kind of emulating him mostly. A lot of people were. Um, was big you know, picture guy. It, it, yeah, it was a big. He liked sort of a an overall feeling, a tone of what what the film left him with, and he could point to those little details and say those are some neat things within this. But the sort of overall notion of what the picture was unto itself, like this kind of platonic version of the movie. What's weird is what he was concerned with. And I I realized years after I'd been writing that that's what I was also doing. It's weird as I'm always finding myself kind of halfway. Like I tend Mm. to talk about like the big stuff, but then I get really wrapped up in nuts and bolts sometimes. (laughs) Like I used to, you remember me, I used mm. to be a big structure guy, like more so than I am now. And you still are to, to a degree because you, you came from screenwriting school. Yeah. So you're concerned with the way a screenplay yeah. needs to function at, in order for it to be good. Yeah. Um, um, as for your other question, could Siskel and <coughs> Ebert like, become a thing today? I don't know if it's even easy to say that because the discourse that we have around cinema now, I think, is very specifically because we had Siskel and Ebert. Yeah. We had had film critics on TV before, but it was usually, like, one talking head on the news mm-hmm. or maybe, like, a short thing in, like, public yeah, Gene, uh, television. Gene Shallot is a very famous yeah. one. But, like, just basically someone just says, and these new movies are out. This one's pretty good. This mm-hmm. one has a pun. Uh, and, like, that was <laughs> that was what, what we had. Mm-hmm. And what Siskel and Ebert brought into... I mean, it wasn't like the biggest show ever, but it was the only show of its kind. It was, it aired on, in, in my market, like on Sundays, like right before 60 Minutes. So a lot of people were at home and watching. And um, what it brought into the household was two things. Every movie. Like, you would just hear mm. about every movie. The little movies, the big movies, they'd always be the first two big ones right off the bat. But then the second half of the show would be about independence and foreign films. And so all of a sudden, you're more aware of the wider landscape of cinema than you might be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you could learn a lot without even seeing the films. You'd know of their existence and you'd be interested and wait for them to hit home video. Um but the real thing that they brought in was what we would now call, sometimes derogatorily, mm-hmm. the discourse. Mm-hmm. And they would actually have a frank discussion about the merits of art mm-hmm. and what was good, bad, ethical, unethical, <clears throat> qu- quality, low quality. And I think that a lot of the media that we consume today that is about art, specifically about cinema, Mm-hmm. uses that as a framework. Yeah. It's yeah, basically yeah. having a conversation between one or more people. Even a lot of the talking head stuff is kind of framed as though there is an assumption of an audience's reaction. Mm. You know, oh, I know what you're thinking, blah body blah blah But, like, it's about having a conversation in public yeah. and sharing ideas and no. bickering sometimes mm. and being entertaining as we discuss art. And Could I think it. that's... I can't even imagine 
today's entertainment well, industry without what Eber and Siskel did. Well, but, and, and not just because they sort of pioneered it, because what do you think we're doing right now? Literally this, right now. Literally right now. Uh, what do you think every single vlog is? What do you think every single nerd podcast is? Yeah. That's all because of, of Siskel and Eber. Could it happen? It's happening. Yeah. It's still happening. It's happening constantly. And if, if you're referring to the notion of maybe a few star critics mm. uh, taking sort of, the limelight yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah taking the limelight and kind of acting as more or less the taste makers of the nation mm. if you want to put it that way uh, no I think film criticism is far too scattered right now there are of course many many amazingly talented film critics writing right now mm-hmm. way better than me who Same. are yeah who are yeah, writing writing for big rags who are uh pushing the discourse and finding things and are just excellent writers. And I encourage that you find a lot of these people and just find the people who are being published regularly because they are all doing exceptional work. Yeah. But none of them has really risen to the ranks that Siskel and Eber did. And I don't think they ever will. We have Leonard Maltin. We still have Leonard Maltin. He's he's preeminent. He is, he is the, the elder statesman of the craft right now. He's Mm -hmm. just got a really prestigious award. He's mm-hmm. still having some really important conversations. I disagree with him 98% of the time. <laughs> I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Leonard like Maltin. For me, Because I would bicker that guy. Um, I remember he had a, a call-in show once. and, mm. and Or it was like, a, like an Instagram thing. Type in a question. And uh, the question they were putting out to the audience was, what films would you like to discuss with Leonard Maltin? And people were putting in his favorite movies. And he's a big fan of the golden age of Hollywood. I want to talk to you about All About Eve. Yeah. I want to talk with you about uh, Bring a Baby. I want to talk to you about Dumbo or you know, any Disney animated film because he loves those movies. I would love to sit down and talk with Leonard Maltin about Spring Breakers, a film he <laughs> hates. <laughs> That is caustic and confrontational and difficult and something that he is just not on the same wavelength as. But yeah. I would love to have a conversation with Leonard Maltin about something like that. Yeah. Uh, Spring Breakers. I put it on my runners up of the best of the decade. It is a gross movie. Yep. And that's why I put it on there. No, I, I, I was tempted, movie to, put, a lot, I was tempted to put Trash Humpers on my list just because it's even more confrontational. Was that this decade? Yeah. It was like 2010 or something? When, let me look up Trash Humpers. I think it was this decade. I think it's Ryan Lakota. It might be 2009. But anyway. Um, yeah, I, again, we, again, we had famous critics, but I think, yeah, I'm trying to imagine. It was 2009. World, I apologize. I, yeah. I, I think <coughs> if no one had thought to put two film critics mm. on television talking about film mm. as a show, and if, or if they had chosen film critics who had a little less chemistry mm. than Siskel and Ebert did, um, People would still be talking about movies, but yeah, I don't think it would be the industry it is now. Mm-hmm. I think if someone just started to now, I just don't know what the, the base yeah. point would be. I think everything would be... I think honestly think Siskel and Ebert at the movies, I think, changed the industry in unquantifiable ways. <laughs> just the way we yeah, talk yeah. about it and the way that we build ancillary uh, art and writing about yeah. it is just all them, but... Um, interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I love those alternate reality things. <laughs> it's fun. Anyway, um, if you recall, uh, uh, one B Peterson mm-hmm. has been, uh, 
cataloging 100 films. Ah, yes. And this is uh, a part part of a project. Anyway, uh, Bibbs and Whitney, I've been thinking a lot about a subject I thought would be a more regular conversation in the film community, but turns out to be quite taboo, and that is piracy. Uh, piracy is a crime undoubtedly. It also happens every day. Mm-hmm. My question is this. Is there a valid argument in favor of piracy? I've heard three that I cannot discount altogether. One... Uh, Growing up, I had friends that lived along or below the poverty line. To them, being able to afford Netflix back in 2010 was a luxury. Some of them were cinephiles, and while they could rely on the libraries for classics, they would pirate new films because they couldn't afford to go to a theater. Uh, Two, I'm currently going to film school in a city where uh, there is exactly one theater that plays only the largest releases. Consequently, there's a group of students in my class who get together to watch pirated copies of art house films that would never be released in a theater within hours of where we live and won't be available to buy or rent until long after the year and the time and uh, time the best of our year lists for Uh, Three, I have a friend who pirates only the films of filmmakers she cannot bring herself to support financially Mm. because she does, but does see his culturally relevant, such as Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, more recently, any and all Weinstein productions. Okay. Uh, To the first two arguments, I say that as unfortunate as having to wait is, I was going to mention that, we have a moral responsibility to wait. This is true. Um, uh, to the third situation, however, I can't just say that she should give money to these people who are undoubtedly some degree of monster. Seriously, Polanski can go and die for what he's done. <laughs> uh, it's an ugly yeah. thing, but I do think that ignoring the conversation isn't going to help anything. I've never heard any high-profile critics or filmmakers speak on the topic and would be very interested to hear your thoughts. Thank you, and see you on the next one, B. Peterson. Okay, the, um, piracy is a big, big, big conversation, and it's not as cut and dry <laughs> as those little bumpers in front of the DVDs we all yeah, bought you, you steal handbag and all these yes. people with you their stolen handbags yes. like watching this video going well yeah okay i guess i shouldn't you, you wouldn't you wouldn't steal a human heart would you oh god uh, <laughs> my wife stole my heart <laughs> should she be pirated? No, they, they did a, a, a spoof of that on a futurama dvd and yeah. it's like you wouldn't steal a handbag you wouldn't steal the crown jewels and then bender is doing those of course things. he's doing it you would steal a human heart yes i would uh there's there's a couple there's a lot of different rationales the basic rationale is this um art has value and i mean beyond the actual art itself we want to live in this pure uh um, ideological zone where all art should be free that's fine but artists need to work and Mm. make money and pay their bills too so if you can give money to an artist for their work you should Mm. and if you don't think their art has financial value then clearly it's not worth watching. <laughs> I'm sorry, to an extent, yeah. that that much is true. Yeah. And so if there's just a matter of... I, I know how much releasing... Uh, uh, distribution can suck yeah. at various parts in the country. You have to drive really far out of your way to see certain films. Some films never make it to your area. You have to wait for home video. That all sucks, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry about that. But I also think that, like, you know, if you can't see Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse... That's not Robert Eggers' fault, and the people who made that movie probably do deserve money whenever you do see it. Yeah. Um, um, now, when it comes to, like, if you're incredibly impoverished yes. and you want to see classic films, libraries are your greatest resource. True. Uh, provided you have a good library. Uh, mm-hmm. Libraries are good, however, about getting films or stock if you ask for it. Yeah, just ask, and um, they'll try to get it from another library. They yeah. can get it from another branch, they can get it from another city, yep. or they can just order it if it's in their budget, which yep. may not be, but it's likely that they'll, they'll they take suggestions. So, um, 
yeah, if if you don't if you can't afford these overwhelmingly expensive and increasing uh, streaming services, then yeah, your library is your best bet. Um, uh, you have to have you, know, you have to buy a working TV and a working video player, and you're set. Yeah. Um, there's uh, as for ha- as for being in film school and having to wait. Yeah, just wait. Yeah. Uh, just pirating new films is just sort of the dick thing to do there, and you're only doing it because you're impatient and. If well, you're just if, doing it to make a top ten list, that's if, not a good enough reason. If there, if your teacher gives you an assignment for a film that you are incapable mm. of tracking down, and God help you, you you needed to pirate it. Mm. I'm not going to judge you too harshly, but your teacher probably shouldn't have given you that assignment. No, um, your teacher should make sure you have access to the things that they actually want you to watch. Um, there are other instances, though. One which you discussed actually was the uh, the asshole rule. Mm-hmm. Where you don't want to give them money because they don't deserve money. Yeah, because if you're paying for Woody Allen's, mm-hmm. you know, movies, you're ultimately donating to his legal defense fund. I get that, yeah. and I'm not gonna. I think there's still like I there's the, the counter argument still basically applies, but on the other end of the spectrum, I don't have a particularly good larger argument against that, and I totally mm-hmm. get it. I know a lot of people who have a rule that, like, like Hitchcock was a fucking creep. Mm. He's also dead. His, his ashes are in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, <laughs> he's very dead. So your, your money isn't going to his, to his defense fund. You're, you're not screwing over mm. anyone, really. It's, you know, if you want to still have, like, a twinge give... of guilt about watching the movies, mm. I get it. Yeah. But at that point, maybe it's a bit of a moot point. But right now, yeah, Roman Polanski probably doesn't need, need the money. Mm. I get it. Yeah. The um, other, but there is one more actual, really, really good argument in favor of piracy. Okay. When there's no legal way to get the movie. Uh, when there's no legal way to get it, or more significantly to what's happening today, especially with all these big uh, streaming services that are launching and claiming to have big archives and don't. Yeah. If a studio is withholding a film from you, mm-hmm. and there's no and there's no way to get it. Yeah. An archivist is now, uh, or a pirate is now an archivist. If they're working in those movies, yeah. If they're working in a kind of movie that is, yeah, not available any other way, they're the ones who's keeping those films alive. They're the ones keeping it in the conversation. The studio, who's earning no money from a pirate, Mm -hmm. should be grateful to the pirate for keeping their film in the consciousness. Yeah, because then then if there's there's no demand for it, if nobody knows it exists, Mm -hmm. if people know it exists and they're actually seeking it out and they can see it and say, wow, this is really, really good. I wish I could get a good version of this. Yeah, the studio should be really, really grateful in now, that instance. Here's the rule, and yes, this is a very you important can, rule. You can and you can get bootleg DVDs. You can get you know strip streams or whatever. If you are able to buy a bootleg or download something illegally because it's not available and no studio has ever put it out, uh, then I'm going to say you're welcome to do that. But if the studio does notice that a lot of these this show or this movie is being talked about and they decide to put out a legit version you are now responsible for buying a legit version yeah to make up for the fact that you actually pirated it earlier yeah because the only reason you were pirating it in the first place is because you couldn't do so legally so Mm -hmm. that it's available legally you you kind of own the money on that Mm -hmm. i I think that's the rule um Uh, here's something i also want to encourage and it's not quite the same thing as piracy but it is playing with the numbers a little bit are you theater hopping again theater hopping Uh, again i don't i don't agree with you on this one but i know why you're talking i I advocate it 100 percent because uh, if if you want to see 
uh, some big giganto blockbuster doesn't need your money. Star Wars doesn't need your money. They're, they'll be fine. There, you know, a billion people are seeing this movie. But maybe the lighthouse does need your money. And I think the only way studios see if people are, are actually watching movies, first of all, they are paying attention to Twitter, but more than anything, uh, they're looking at box office receipts. So I, I have long encouraged the behavior of going to a multiplex paying for a ticket for the small indie that needs your money and then going into a different theater that's showing the big blockbuster that doesn't need your money. Uh, this is especially true if you've already seen the movie. Yeah, if you're going to see it again, yeah. I, I can understand. Um, I It's real really, mixed feelings about this one, man, I gotta and, tell you. And because they're automating so much of multiplexes now, it's easier to do than ever before. That's true. The only way anyone's really going to bug in a lot of multiplexes yeah. is if you're sitting in their seat and you won't move. Yeah. Um... Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And there's something real high school rebel about that that I know you find really super appealing. Mm. But part of me would rather you just see the independent movie. And in, in addition to giving it the money, I actually contribute to the conversation around it. Mm. But I, I see your point. Um, yeah, piracy is not nearly as cut and dry as a lot of people would have it be. Uh, and again, I think the archivist argument is the best argument. Mm. Um, because, yeah, if you're really trying to scour film history... You're going to find that as we move more into the digital streaming realm, a lot of studios don't give a shit about a lot of their own product. Mm-hmm. They just don't. They so don't if you do, want to yeah. try to find something... Like, I would love I would love to recommend people see a film called Tag the Assassination Game. <laughs> really fun 1980s comedy slash horror film about a fake game of like assassin where people like shoot each other with dark guns on a college campus where one of the contestants uh, has a has a psychotic break and starts killing people for real and nobody knows so they think yeah. all, everyone else is having fun and he's actually killing people yeah. stars a young Linda Hamilton like before she was in Terminator nice. it was the I think it was the directorial debut or the second film from Nick Castle who would go on to do the last Starfighter fun and, movie and, and who was also Michael Myers incidentally the original Michael Myers and then the new Michael Myers as well he co- he was one of the people who played him in the latest uh, film oh that, uh, yeah that's right he was. they brought him they, back they, they brought him back to I thought that was mask. cool. Uh, um, there, there are but, a lot, a lot of but films yeah, that, that are that's not, not available. You, yeah. you can't find Tag the Assassination Game. So if you can find a crappy <clears throat> VHS rip <clears throat> on YouTube, that's it. That's the only um, way to see it. I'm not going to complain and, that you saw that. I also that. want to fold in, the, and this is this is going to enter a gray area, but there yeah. are some films that have been given some really awesome DVD releases or really awesome Blu-ray releases, and they go out of print real fast. Yep. And then the only way to get them, and you're, because nobody lives near video stores anymore but us, yeah. uh, is to go on like Amazon or eBay and pay, you know, shell out a hundred bucks for a single movie. I don't want to encourage anybody to pay a hundred dollars for a single movie, even if you really love it. Spend mm. it on something more useful. Well, because like that groceries. money isn't going to the to the artists anyway. Yeah, That's it's going, going to people to who collect. Some, now, there's uh, a collector's a market for yeah, that, and, and mm. I get that. And if you have the money, by all means. But at the same time, you should be able to see the goddamn movie. Yeah. So I, I don't want to encourage piracy in an instance like that, but I could understand why you might want. To. My fundamental rule is this: if you can see it legally, see it legally. Yeah. If you will be able to see it legally <sighs> soon. Mm-hmm. It's not like you'll never be able to, or you have no idea. But it's just a matter of waiting for it to be on home video in two months. Wait, just yeah. If you absolutely, unless there's some weird emergency where you absolutely have to, just wait. Uh, and if it's not available in any current medium, like oh, you can get it on VHS or whatever. But mm-hmm. like those are all secondhand copies now, no matter what. I'm not going to judge you for pirating a film. Okay. But only then. That's the right. one time where I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to judge you at all mm-hmm. for that. I don't think there's a big counter argument for it. Uh, let's right. move on. 
Okay. Um, here is uh, this. This is about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I guess William, you'll have to take this. Uh, yeah. Once uh, again, Whitney has to bow uh, out of this because of his connection I, to I, Quentin Tarantino. I work for Quentin Tarantino, so I can't comment. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, I'm going to sign off this time because I don't want to be called name redacted again. Uh, <laughs> even though it would be kind of cool to and to be mysterious and anonymous, but I'm not cool, so I'm going to sign off. The so unknown commenter. This is this is Alan. Hi, Alan. Um, I wanted to compare and contrast two movies I saw on DVD recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Oh, I haven't seen Time Me Up, Time Me Down, though, so that's going to be complicated. Oh, well, let's, let's, do, let's, let's read this best. letter anyway. Let's do our um, best. It's easy to see what's common to these movies. Violence against women. Uh, William, you objected to Brad Pitt assaulting a girl in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't have a problem with it because the girl was a member of the Manson family, armed with a knife, entering a house intent on killing people. If a girl is coming at me intent on killing me, I'm not going to be such a gentleman to her. Uh, compare that to Antonio Banderas in Time Me Up, Time Me Down, who kidnaps a woman, assaults her, and leaves her tied up when he leaves, all in an attempt to get her to love him. And worse, at the end of the movie, she did love him, which pissed me off no small amount. I have to believe that if I were a woman, it would piss me off even more. Either Banderas or the director Almodovar defended the movie in an interview by saying, what the hell do you think happened in Beauty and the Beast? And that's a kid's movie. Fair enough, mm. but at least the Beast didn't assault Belle or leave her tied up. Mm. Mm. She wasn't allowed to leave. Yeah. Uh, to, end the, uh, to end with a question for Bibbs, uh, what's your review of Time Me Up, Time Me Down? And place it in context with your review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay, um, again, I haven't seen Time Me Up, okay. Time Me Down, so I'm at a loss here, and I apologize for that. That sucks. Whitney, mm. without bringing up Once Upon a Time, have you mm. seen Time Me Up, Time Me Down? Uh, it's been a long time. Okay. Um there, there's a weird sort of psychosexual element to a lot of uh, Almodovar's films from that era, from like the 80s, uh, where, yeah, like if you've ever seen Matador or um, several others, uh, there's uh, this this kind of playful fairy tale type tone to his movies that I think takes the curse off of it. And I think their comparison to Beauty and the Beast is apt. Uh, because, mm. yeah, that is about essentially Stockholm Syndrome. A lot yeah. of critics have noticed that recently, uh, especially when the, the live-action remake came out. Wait a yeah. minute, this is just about a beast who keeps a woman hostage. Yeah. Yeah. That's always been the story. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea is that she's so good-hearted that she transforms him rather than her, him murdering her. Yeah. Um, At least that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah. A, that's actually a common trope in a lot of older literature. Like, have you ever read um, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, the Shakespeare play? No. There's a, a bit where um, a, a teenage girl is kidnapped by pirates and sold into sexual slavery. And she's thrown into a cell and uh, the, the evil pimp says, ha I'm going to get, send all these men in and they're going to have their way with you. And she's like, send them in. I'm just going to talk to them. And Shakespeare is such a, a, a powerful poet that the men come in is like, okay, I'm, I'm here I am to do my business. And she ends up talking to them and ends up having them like leave ashamed that they ever visited a brothel and <laughs> swearing to living a good life. Yeah. So yeah, this idea that, you know, that this, it's a sexist notion, but I think it, it's also empowering that a woman can be so overwhelmingly good mm. that they can sort of transform the captor and develop some sort of emotional bond. And I think that's what Almodovar is getting at in kind of a kinky context. Right. Um, again, you can talk about Once Upon mm. a Time uh, in Hollywood. And again, I apologize for not being able to really do this assignment the way that you want me to. Mm. Um, but no, I want to know of Almodovar and how... Uh, he does work in a certain uh, heightened reality in a lot of his work. Um, and indeed, Tarantino is too, but he's also working in a recognizable reality because he's using real people. 
Yeah. Uh, and once he started bringing in the reality of it, especially in a relatively grounded mm-hmm. film up until that point, uh, you start getting into a wonky area where the film can't entirely exist on its own terms. It also has to exist in terms of our familiarity with the context. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the context of Once Upon a Time uh, in Hollywood, um, yeah, okay, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio kill the Manson family murderers. This movie's been out for a while. It made over $100 million. I'm assuming people know the ending. Um, there's a certain catharsis that I think a lot of people are projecting onto the film because we know all about the Manson family murders and how horrible they were. And that's true, and I get that. But I am also looking at, within the context of the actual narrative of the film, mm-hmm. where Brad Pitt... And Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah, people invade their home. They're also comical fuck ups. <laughs> so the way that the movie treats them in this sequence is as the brunt of a joke. They're not as a legitimate threat to these guys. Why? Because Tarantino has lifted these guys up into a vaunted, macho, masculine status. Their careers might not be great and they may have self doubts, but they are men. Manly men, and when people enter their house, they just can kill them really, really, really easily. When Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio kill these people, and I'm not talking about just in self-defense, when they brutally commit acts of really just over-the-top violence against these people, they have no sense of that context. This isn't like the end of Inglorious Bastards, where at the end of World War II, a bunch of Jewish soldiers get to enact their revenge on Hitler. This is prevenge. This is like minority report situation where these people actually haven't done the thing yet. And that I think that changes the morality of it. And I also think it completely ignores the reality of what a lot of the people within the Manson family were actually going through. It's not like they were all really happy in a cult and just watching TV all day. A lot of these people were really tortured and brainwashed and they are, yeah, murderers. A lot of them belong in jail, but in a way, they're also kind of victims in and of themselves. And I think the movie completely ignores that reality into in order to inject a fan service alternate reality in which fictional characters Tarantino likes get to be lifted up by injecting themselves into a tragedy in which they have absolutely no part. So that, for me, is how that feels differently than a lot of other movies that play around with violence. Even Tarantino's own films. And I like almost all of Tarantino's films. So for me, that's where the line is. Um, but again, I haven't seen Tommy Up, Tommy Down. Maybe if I watched it, I would be pissed. I uh, cannot say. And again, I know I'm in the minority opinion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know a lot of people love the shit out of it. You should watch more Elmo Devar films. That's, I do. That's know my that. comment. Um, yes, yeah, I do know that. Just he, he's done. What, his newest one was one of my favorites of the, this last year. My, my first Elmo Devar was was one of those filmmakers where my first introduction to their work was not great. And as a result, I wasn't super excited to check out more of his work. But since then, I've seen more of his work and I've been meaning to catch up because um, I finally saw All About My Mother not that long ago. We did it on the podcast. All About My Mother. That one one for me, I'm like, oh, okay, now I want to see everything he's ever done. I I love Talk to Her. Talk to Her is really good. That was the one I saw and I didn't like it. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I, um, I like talk to her a lot. Um, yeah, I didn't didn't care for it, but okay. whatever. I, uh, all about my mother and, slayed and me. I love it. Be sure to see Pain and Glory though. Really yeah. Oh, I, I'm I'm seeing though. literally seeing it tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, and I can't comment on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So um, yeah, good, bad, Whitney can't talk about, and I apologize for that. That sucks. Yeah. By yeah. the way, I, I would love to have a more complicated as, as, conversation. As, as with a Whitney critic, I would it. love to be able to comment on it, but I'm just in a position where I'm, yeah. I'm not permitted. Yeah. Um, here's a letter from Lewis. Uh, hello, Lewis. Hello, um, dear Bibbs and the Wheel Man. The Wheel Man. I like it. Am I, am I like the... You're like Frank Grillo in that Netflix movie. I was about to... Am, am I driving away from the heist scene? Yeah. I, you're power sliding away from, yeah. I don't know, underwater, whatever movie you just saw at the theater. <laughs> now, before you hurt yourself with your eyes rolling <laughs> over the wheel, man, I want you to hear me out. I know that in general, remakes are at the very least awful and can be reprehensible. However, I don't think they are inherently bad. As long as they are well acted and interesting, I don't see a problem with the remakes. <clears throat> After all... What is a remake but a new production of an existing story that happens in the theater all the time? Exactly. Uh, so in that vein, if it were thrust upon you to remake a classic film, what film would you choose, who would you cast in the main roles, and what, if anything, would you change to keep it interesting? Uh, by way of example, Sunset Boulevard. In my remake, Norma Desmond is, instead of an aging silent film star, an aging 70s action star, played by Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> the William Holden role is played by John Boyega. The Max von Sydow role, I, I think... Um, not Max von Sydow. Otto, um, Otto Preminger. Otto Preminger, uh, Ma- who plays the role of Max, mm. uh, would be played by Werner Herzog. Yeah, that's good casting. And instead of Cecil B. DeMille, it's either Ridley Scott or James Cameron. I like all these things. Who worked with Sigourney Weaver, so that's all pretty clever. Yeah. Uh, the film is pretty much the same as the original, except now it is set now, and Norma wants a limited series written that she plans to star in to sell to Netflix or Amazon instead of a film. Fair. Yeah. yeah all, all of that's fair. Um... That could be fine. I like it. Uh, so I put it to you. What film would you remake and who would you cast? And before Whitney says, I don't want remakes. I want something new. It's for fun, man. Relax. Play the game. <laughs> Thanks uh, for the podcast, Lewis. Thank you. Um, well, first off, mm-hmm. uh, I, I there's this weird anti-remake mentality. Um, and not, I actually not think as it's much weird. as it was like a couple of years ago. Yeah, but it's yeah. still out there. And you see people talking about, oh, I can't believe they remade, mm-hmm. I don't know, Black Christmas or whatever. And I'm like, but they did it before. Like, it's fine. Like, I I'm I used to be mad about remakes mm-hmm. because, oh, how dare they besmirch the bloody blue. But the, the older I got, the more remakes I saw and the more I realized two things. One, a lot of remakes are good. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily great but most movies aren't necessarily great i'll, no. I'll take good um a, a remake's job isn't necessarily to improve upon the original it just needs to justify its own existence mm. so it has its own take it has its own idea i'm fine yeah. um if it's not as good as the original fine we still have the original i'll i'll live with it and i'm less offended now they're like oh there's another total recall out there i'll mention that there's another total recall and get back to talking about the good one i'm, I'm okay with it um, so I'm not against it's, remakes. It's unf- I'm not against them at all. I, I Sometimes I roll my eyes, but usually I'm like, whatever. It'll either be good or it won't. There, there is something really obnoxious about the way remakes, however, kind of elbow their way into a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. unfortunately, what, there are now three feature films that are simply called Halloween, all about the same characters. So um, That's my lady. Yeah. It's, it's annoying that you have to sort of distinguish and you have to sort of work your way around which film you're talking about rather than just sort of having a conversation about a single film. Um, because the remake, just in being made, whether or not it was good or bad, has now altered the landscape. And uh, that's true. But <clears throat> is, is the purity of the landscape really the most important thing? No, it's just for cleanliness of conversation. I can that I'm appreciate that. With. 
Um, um, I remember yeah. pe- there were people online. Who, I, I don't know if this was an actual suggestion or not, or mm-hmm. an actual idea that was floated. But someone online suggested that there might be a possibility that like Universal was going to remake Jaws. And okay. a lot of people were like, how dare you besmirch Jaws? And I'm like, what are you talking about? We had three sequels this besmirching Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Jaws the Revenge? Yeah, they're, they're a piece of crap. All of them are, like, are kind of like, listen, I like two of them. They're stupid, <laughs> but I like them. They're incredibly stupid. Yeah, but like, I, there are two Jaws sequels that I very much enjoy watching, even though they're not good movies. Mm. They're, they all make Jaws 1 look well, a little dumber, also, but we still have Jaws 1 and no one cares. It's fine. They've remade all kinds of classic films. They remade Breathless. They remade Psycho. Yeah. Uh, Oftentimes, people just yeah. forget about the remake. Yeah, yeah. Like, no one talks about that remake of Breathless. Like, nobody no, talks no, about like it. Like, Richard Gere completionist, and that's yeah. just about it. <laughs> Which is, a, which is admittedly a very powerful, yeah, powerful one, group in Hollywood. It's that one guy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they made a sequel to The Birds, for goodness sake. They, they, mm-hmm. They're doing this kind of crap all the time to yeah, you. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, it's not well published. Well, because people forget about this re- the remake yeah. of The Birds. People forget about all the made-for-TV remakes of Roman Holiday or Miracle on 34th Street. Why? Because they're forgettable. Yeah. And yeah. then they just sort of slip by, and every once in a while, I'll, like, I'll tweet about, like, hey, do you know Arnold Schwarzenegger directed a remake of A Christmas in Connecticut? Mm-hmm. And people will be like, he fucking what? And I'm like, yeah. More than once, and we watched it together. I have to remind you that they remade Dirty Dancing. I And I'm not yeah. talking about Havana Nights. I'm talking about that big, long TV production. That movie sucks so it, bad. It sucks so bad. It's and such we, a and bad movie. Like, we have to remind ourselves about, about how bad it is, because it's all so forgettable. Um, but, but to the question, and mm. I think it's a fun question, mm. you're, you're given carte blanche to make a movie. You yeah. get the cast you want, you get the budget you want. The rule is it has to be a remake of a classic film. Okay. W- what, do you, what do you lean towards? Mm. What, what's, your, what's your take? Okay. You can do it. I want Michel Gondry okay. to take the exact same script that Joss Whedon wrote for the Avengers, and I want him to make it for $10,000. <laughs> you don't have to Swede the Avengers. Yeah, I want him to Swede the Avengers, or, or Avengers Endgame. And better yet, Avengers Endgame, because that's like three hours long. And do has people like remember of... Sweding? I bet there's a bunch of people listening to us who have no idea what we're talking about. I, I, it, was, it was a buzzword for like a year and a half. There was uh, a movie Michelle Gondry made, a comedy starring yeah. Jack Black and was it Most Deaf? It was Most Deaf, yeah. And they played... Be Kind Rewind. Be Kind Rewind. Funny movie. I like mm. it a lot. Uh, and well, two guys who work at like the last VHS video store, mm. and people actually come to them for VHS, but there's a there's an accident with a magnet and all the movies are accidentally erased and in order to keep renting the movies out they make their own remakes using what they can find around the house and, and, and what they remember of the script yeah and so it's actually kind of like they're they're using pre-existing art to make their own art mm-hmm. and the way that they remake them with through their own like abilities and budget and lens mm-hmm. is kind of their own artistic statement and then the studios come down on them. Yeah, <laughs> and for, it's actually for ripping them off. It's actually kind of an interesting conversation about the way that we repurpose art and the yeah, way well, that we and use... especially now, yeah. the, the way a lot of people are sort of making healthy livings, doing things like cosplay, like mm-hmm. remaking costumes that other people designed. or all these like or, deep yeah. fake trailers people are putting online, yeah, etc. Like th- theoretically, you don't you don't or, own any or, of that. Or, shit. or like you're an artist and you do this landscape, but it's a landscape of like something from Mad Max or Star Wars, mm-hmm. and you know that that is another person's creative vision, but you are creating art based on it. So mm-hmm. there's some of your artistic talent in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's actually a huge part of what's going on with sort of geekery right now. A lot of yeah. people are just 
creating their own art, creating their own worlds, creating an entire community out of making art based on other people's art. Yeah. And uh, I think Michel Gondry was trying to sort of tap into that. And I think he was encouraging creativity, not necessarily slavish devotion to certain kinds of films. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would love to see an actual sanctioned Swede of some gigantic blockbuster. I just went to the the Avengers, but mm-hmm. you could. I'd also like to see him do it for like Titanic, sure, or uh, just anything that really I like sh- that idea. rattled the zeitgeist. I would like to. I was I was looking this up recently. Do you know? And again, with all silent cinema, mm. history is spotty because people weren't keeping clear records because nobody yeah. thought this was going to be this huge historical need for an archive. Uh, but allegedly. Mm-hmm. The first movie remake. Do you know what it was? Based on all that we have information wise. First movie. Oh. It's a famous movie. Uh, was it Frankenstein? No. No, it was probably way before Frankenstein. The Great Train Robbery. Well, was it a remake of something else? No, they remade it a year later. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So uh, one of the early, early, early most influential silent films is a film mm. called The Great Train Robbery. It came out in 1903. It was a longer uh, film than many of the silent shorts of the time, mm-hmm. uh, and it was about a train robbery, and it was a daring film full of stunts and criminality, and uh, there's a very famous shot of a cowboy uh, with a gun firing into the camera, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that like, Scorsese has paid homage to. It's very influential. It's, it's a short film. You should totally check it out. Um one year later, they remade it. <laughs> because, why not? That one made sure, money, let's yeah. do another one. It's the exact same thing, but this one's in 1904. I would think, as an as a playful homage to the first remake ever, we should remake The Great Train Robbery. It's been mm. remade before. Uh, but we should remake The Great Train Robbery, and this time, I would like to see George Miller directed. <laughs> George Miller directing a movie about a train robbery mm. in 1903. There you go. I think that's a really great idea. For Set a in 1903, or is it like uh, is it like Unstoppable or or the Runaway Train? Well, uh, the movie. Okay, well, actually, looking it up right here, uh, the actual train robbery it is allegedly based on, which was it's a like, Butch Cassidy yeah. train robbery. It's, it's like 1860s, uh, right? 1900. Or 1900. So yeah. I would set it in 1900. Okay, that's the rule. Set in 1900. It's a historical film, but I want it to feel as breathless as Mad Max Fury Road okay. in its own way. Um, and I think that'd be really cool. And all I want is that everyone in the film has a gorgeous mustache. <laughs> mustaches galore. A mustache for you. A must- mm. We give out mustaches to the audience. Come the first night, get a mustache. That's your William Castle gimmick. Yeah, isn't it? everyone gets a mustache. And speaking of William Castle, can we bring up bring back one of those? Can we oh, remake yeah. the Tingler? Yeah, and we actually fit like in all of those like 40x theaters or whatever. Mm. They get like buzzes for. No, oh. no. This time you actually electrocute people. <laughs> The point was like, that they electrocuted you. The point is that you could feel a buzzing, like you a, feel a, tingling, a vibration, a tingle, and a tingling. Not, not actually electric. Call it the people. electric stab. <laughs> Points throughout the movie, like electrodes stab into your shoulders and give you a shock. Not not kill you. Not mm-hmm. enough to kill you, but you know, I miss. I'm really mi- really straighten your body out a little bit. I miss Dark Castle. 
Dark Castle <laughs> Studios? They're still yeah. around, aren't they? I know, but I mean, they had like an ethos for a while. If you remember this in the late well, like 90s. Like remake of 13 Ghosts. Yeah, in the, the late 90s, of, uh, Robert, like Robert Zemeckis and a few other people put together a film studio called Dark Castle. And mm. their whole raison d'etre for years was just to remake William Castle movies. And they did three. <laughs> and they're all they're pretty all, good. Well, I'd say they're all pretty bad. They're but... all entertaining, though. Mm. I think they're really fun. House on Haunted Hill is a real hoot. House on Haunted really, Hill is pretty good. It's very entertaining. It's, it's a bunch of really great mm. campy actors mugging with a bunch of really crazy CG horror effects and it's a lot of fun 13 ghosts is fun it's not much to it but I like the I like the monsters they're all cool I like it a lot here's something really embarrassing that remake of 13 ghosts is one of the few films I've seen in a theater twice in a day why uh, because I, I I was consuming films pretty voraciously at the time, so I just mm. sort of went out in the morning and saw it on my own, forgetting that I had promised a friend that I would see it with them uh. that evening. So I came out, I was like, okay, you ready to see 13 Ghosts? Oh, shit, I gotta see this thing again. <laughs> I want to be a good friend, I gotta see this thing again. Okay, I'll see it again. You know who's good in that movie? Matthew Lillard. <laughs> Matthew Lillard's a fan. Matthew Lillard, there's, there used to be performance, they might still have it, but there used to be an award at the MTV mm. Movie Awards called the Best Scared as Shit Performance. Wait, so, they, wait, they did House on a Hill, they did 13 Ghosts, what was their third William Castle? Oh, um, I thought, am I misremembering this, that they only do the two to start with, and then they kind of peter out? they did out? stuff like Gothica and Ghost Ship. Ghost and, Ship wasn't, um, a, wasn't based on anything? Yeah, you're right. No, I yeah. guess they did only do the two. I wish they'd stuck with it, I guess, is yeah. my point. I would have loved to have seen, like, I just called up their, like, uh, Jessica their... Tandy in Straight Jacket or something, <laughs> like... <laughs> How cool would that have been? <laughs> a very different film. Yeah. I love I Jessica Tandy, but she's no she's no Joan Crawford. I finally saw Straight Jacket. If you've never seen Straight Jacket. Straight Jacket's awesome. Holy shit, Straight Jacket is good. Joan Crawford plays a woman who killed her husband. Mm. And uh, she's in a mental institution for many years. And then uh, her daughter, who has grown up and is mm. about to get married... Uh, Joan Crawford comes out of the mental institution and she's with her daughter and her daughter's just everyone's keeping a special eye on Joan Crawford because it looks like she could snap at any time and kill us all. Mm. And... Boy, is it stylish and great. And Joan Crawford <laughs> gives a really good performance, yeah. actually. He will give her a lot of crap for that so, movie. Um, it's so good. Dark Castle Entertainment also did the remake of House of Wax. Maybe that's the one you're that's thinking That's probably what I'm thinking. Of, that wasn't, wasn't a William Castle film. But it's a similar vibe. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm thinking they of. They also did Splice and Orphan, which are awesome movies. They did some good shit, yeah, man. Ah, yeah. oh, God, I would love to produce horror movies. Their really. last movie was Suburbicon, the George Clooney movie, that's which nobody weird, remembers. Also, that's a weird... That doesn't really fit the brand. Yeah. Um... Anyway, see Straight Jacket. I promise you. I promise you. you you'll dig Straight Jacket. It's crazy. Yeah, straight, well, just it's and, it's stylish and weird and campy and wonderful. And any of the William Castle films from the late fifties on are just are just going to be. But like, but but you. like, they're not all necessarily good movies. I think Straight Jacket is actually a legitimately good movie. Uh, I'd suppose so. You know, like like it's, even it's, some of those it's lesser broad, films, but like, it's... like Homicidal. I saw what you did. Yeah. I, I haven't seen Shanks. <laughs> one with Marcel Marceau, but I, I heard that one's pretty good. All right. Um, uh, let's do one last letter and then we'll move on. All right. Um, this one is from Zay. Hello, Zay. Hi, Zay. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I've been listening for the past year and a half to your myriad of podcasts and decided to finally write in. I'm writing after the Kazam slash Man Who Fell to Earth double feature. Okay. From our, our sadly now defunct podcast, The Two Shot. But we're replacing it with something neat. Replacing it with something neat. Yep. Um, uh, when you said, don't make this your first foray into art house cinema, when it was mine and my friends first. Aww. Uh, it piqued my interest because at the time, David Bowie was quickly becoming my idol, and he still is. And I'd already seen Labyrinth, and The Man Who Fell to Earth kept coming up when learning more about him. At the time, the film was available at, on Netflix, and I decided to dive in and show it to my friends. Best believe no one would let me pick the movie for a while <laughs> after that. <laughs> 
I mean, it's a bit of a deep dive. Yeah, I'll admit that I didn't even get it at the time, but I found it incredibly exciting at the time, despite my misunderstandings, and I appreciate it a lot more now, further in my film viewing career. My question is... Are there any art house films you guys watched way too soon mm. or films you tried to show your friends and they immediately dismissed it or made you feel weird for wanting to show you that, that, that film? Oh, that's like a third of my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> thanks for everything you guys do. I'm getting to spend getting to spend multiple hours of my week with you guys in my ear. All love Zay. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, seriously. Like when you when you get into like the weird stuff. And like your friends are not on that journey with you at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, every once in a while, you'll open someone's eyes, and every but most of the times, they'll be like, "Dude, just mm-hmm. can we watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High?" <laughs> like it's just some mainstream yeah. thing. Like I've lost, I have all of these. I've I've always had like been a DVD collector once once I started like having my own money. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love having a library available, and then people would come over, and like especially when I had roommates, like who weren't like my spouse, like mm-hmm. um, I would just live with people who I knew in college or whatever, and their friends would come over, and they'd be like, "Oh, you have all these movies," and I'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, what do you want to watch?" And they never like look at all my interesting weird stuff. Mm-hmm. They always said one of three things: Pirates of the Caribbean, no, oh, um, Fight Club. Reservoir Dogs, yeah, no. okay, it was Fight Club, uh huh. Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Old School, which I didn't even own. (sighs) Those are the three. Those are the only films they wanted to watch for like all of like 2004 through like 2008. And then I finally moved out on my own and I got rid of, I got rid of though that, that, that in my life. (laughs) I was gone. Yeah. No, I I had an identical experience because I was collecting either like new weird art house stuff um some some classic cinema that i was just starting to get into at the time yeah or uh, yeah or just like weird culty stuff so it's like what do you want to watch dr strangelib or ben-hur mm-hmm. or begotten like those are your choices what is with you and begotten i like tonight? begotten i don't it's just <laughs> oh, you're not supposed to like begotten I, I, begotten is a begotten is a film you're supposed to like See, but mm. if you like it, I feel like you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> the God is a very weird, fucked up experimental mm. horror film mm. from E. Elias Marie, who also did Shadow mm. of the Vampire, which I would argue is one of the great horror movies of the century mm. so far. And, and, and Begotten, too. Well, he, he, it's it's silence. There's no dialogue. It's just sound effects. There's a little bit of music, and it's filmed in this kind of really... Uh, I'm not exactly sure how he even filmed it. This kind of chiaroscuro... Uh, difficult to see black and white grainy photography mm-hmm. uh, and it's about you know gods destroying themselves and just mm-hmm. the, the spawn of the gods quivering on the earth and yeah all this really it's, heady artistic theological stuff which is a really interesting way to say it's a bunch of weird people in masks in a shack but okay <laughs> you know what weird people in a masks in a shack that's how a lot of film careers get started I'm, I'm not gonna fight you on that mm-hmm. I'm just not the biggest fan of the begotten but um yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, times when I completely whiffed it. Like, where mm. I was like, oh, let's watch this thing. And people were like, fuck you. Um, my friends still came back to me occasionally when I insisted. Mm. So when I saw Julie Taymor's Titus... Ooh, I, that's, I, I that's, I that's a, that one's... That, you'd think that would work, because yeah, that's cause full it's, of it's incident like, and yeah, craziness. And, and energetic you know? and yeah. violent and, you know, just there's cannibalism and all yeah. kinds of horrible things in that film. And it's Shakespeare, so there's all this exciting language. And yeah. 
I, I loved it. I saw it and I just fell in love immediately. And I said, okay, I real I know you guys never listen to me. I know you hate it whenever <laughs> I do this, but you guys got to go. I, okay. Forget about Eraserhead. You guys need to come with me now and see Titus. And I actually got them all together and they all bought their tickets and they all saw Titus. One of my friends kind of liked it. Everybody else said, we're not letting you pick anymore. I'm, it's too long. It's too weird. What is this crap you're making us watch? Man, I don't understand not liking Titus, man. Titus, Titus is so exciting. I, I understand not loving Titus. I don't understand like being bored with Titus. Titus is yeah. like designed to grab you. Like, <laughs> just, like, pay attention to me. I'm like, okay, Titus, sorry. It's Shakespeare's biggest hit. Yeah, I'm really... I'm trying to think of times when I've just completely bombed it. Mm. Like, I know I've tried showing people horror movies that they just did not yeah. feel, like, at mm. all. Like, I think... I tried showing people um, Wes Craven's The Hills of Eyes, and they All just right. couldn't get into it. They couldn't take it seriously, mm-hmm. which I guess fair enough, but I don't understand it. Um, yeah, I had a lot of that, like with like some like early horror movies mm-hmm. where people. I remember this isn't the same thing, but I remember I was dating someone once, and uh, I found out on Halloween she'd never seen John Carpenter's Halloween. She'd only seen oh, Rob yeah. Zombie's Halloween, and I was like, "Oh, ah, we should see John okay. Carpenter's Halloween. It's, I think it's better." And she preferred Rob Zombie's Halloween. Hmm. No coming for taste. That's, yeah, you we, know we, we broke up a week later. That's all <laughs> I'm not going to say that that was the reason, but I'm also not going to say that that wasn't a factor. All right. <laughs> Well, when when you're young, you do test friends and potential mates with your taste. Sometimes there's it's a great there's not, the, a, not the most mature thing to do, but it's something we all do. There's so. a great there's a great bit in the Big Sick. What does he make her watch the Big Sick? Is it like Flash Gordon or something? Oh, or, I forgot what it was. He like something like that. Kumail yeah, Nanjiani, some, some 80s cult movie. Yeah, it's like, he's like showing her a movie, but he's only looking at her to gauge her reactions. Mm. He's like, no, I love being tested. Yeah. <laughs> like she, she knows what's going on immediately. Yeah, she, no, this, you're not here to see me to see yeah. the movie. You're here to see if I like the movie the way it's you like, like the movie. Oh, I think it was so Dawn that, of the Dead. Oh, that was makes it sense. Was it Dawn of the Dead? It, that it might have been I, Dawn of the Dead. I believe it. I It's one of those. Yeah, it's like, you're, you're, you're really going to like this because this is a good judge of your character. Oh, I love it when my dates test me. She's like... <laughs> That's such a good. That should have made my runners up for the best of the decade list. That movie, the big sick is awesome. That movie destroyed so me. Good. That's so well so made. Good, yeah. All right, uh, so that's it for uh, our letters column, long one this week. Um, and uh, thank you very much, everyone who sent in uh, your lists, everyone who sent in your questions. We really appreciate it. Uh, and we'll be back next week with more. So be sure to email us letters at critically acclaimed dot net, um, where we will read your letters <laughs> on this show. Uh, th- the letters I've been reading are a combination of things we just got recently, as well as a lot of old letters from like maybe two months ago. We're caught up to about two months ago. That's not so bad. We're, we're, we're doing we get okay. a lot of letters. We as get you a lot tell. of letters, and yeah. and uh, we are not going to read every single one. We do skip over a couple, um, just mm. as a matter of course. We can't get to all of them. Mm. Sometimes uh, they're about similar topics. Yeah, we're going to skip like, over yeah. like if several people ask us the same question. We'll skip over yeah. everybody else's. But that's not not meant as a slight to you at all. We appreciate yeah. every single letter you get. We read every letter you get. And as you can tell, we, we get, try to take. Um, every one of them seriously and talk as much about yeah, them as we yeah. can so um again letters at critically acclaimed.net feel mm-hmm. free to send us an email uh don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already to the critically acclaimed network leave us a review wherever you find us that helps us find an audience which really is awesome um if you want even more of bibs and whitney hmm. by god there's more there's always more <laughs> patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network 
Mm-hmm. We have a ton of stuff there, including all our yesterdays, our Star Trek podcast, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in uh, production order. Uh, we have uh, Only the Best, where we review every single nominee for Best Picture in chronological order. Uh, we're behind on our commentary tracks, which we're going to try to crank out soon. Sorry about that. Um, and uh, there's a ton more stuff besides. We're having a Google Hangout in a few days, people that are top tier. Um, a lot of fun stuff. Yeah. Going over there. Oh, and uh, if you're a fan of the movie trivia Schmodown, and if you live in the New York area, you might want to try to stop by. I will be playing a three-way movie trivia match at the Roulette Theater. Um, I think it's Saturday the 25th. It's the last Saturday in January. Okay. Um, against uh, the great Dan Merle from Screen Junkies, and also Brendan Meyer, the co-star of The Guest. <laughs> an odd thing, but that's the way it is. Um, so there's that. Mm. And um, also, we're on Twitter. <coughs> we're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. Uh, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And we want to thank everybody who took the time to write us, everybody in the future, whoever will take the time to write us, and everybody else, because why not? Anyway, sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. <laughs>